So hi, on today's episode of Hope, we're here with uh, Anirudh. He works at GovLab and he's basically an, an expert at problem definition. So hi Anirudh, how are you doing? Hi Alaysa, uh, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I, I just wanted to ask, first of all, before we start, let's talk a little bit about what GovLab does because I'm sure that not a lot of people are aware of the kind of things that it works on or who or what it is. So let's start off by talking about that. Sure. So uh, the GovLab, which is short for the Governance Lab, is a um, research think tank. You know, we think we call ourselves an action research institute based at New York University uh, and we're based in Brooklyn. Uh, our mission is to solve uh, public problems by involving both people and using data and new technologies uh, and making people's lives better as a result of it. Right. Uh, so as part of that, we do a whole range of projects that how can you use data responsibly? How do you use different types of data? How do you leverage all these new technologies that are coming out now? Uh, blockchain and artificial intelligence and there's all these concerns about how you use these technologies for the public good, but then making sure that uh, all privacy the is not invaded. Privacy, right, exactly. So how do you do these things responsibly? Uh, and then, uh, you know, there's an asset in the communities that, that are around us that we don't leverage enough, which is just the intelligence of the people in the community. So we right. do a lot of work uh, trying to understand and, and experiment on how you can leverage that intelligence that exists in the communities uh, in an efficient and, and you know, legitimate way that, that can actually solve public problems. Right, okay. So uh, since you mentioned uh, the different kinds of projects that uh, GovLab like sort of undertakes, so do you wanna talk about some of the recent projects that you've been working on? Absolutely, so my focus at GovLab is uh, on two things. So one of them is problem definition, which you mentioned, and we do a whole lot of training work um, around sharing what we've learned over the past several years about problem definition and how to define a problem in a way that makes it easy to find solutions to specific problems. Right. Um, and then, as I was mentioning a, a little bit earlier, how do you leverage the collective intelligence, as we call it, in the communities um, to both define problems well uh, and to find solutions to them? So one of the pro projects that I've been working on very recently is called Collective Intelligence for Problem Solving, where mm -hmm we documented um, a dozen or so case studies from all over the world where governments and NGOs have gone into the communities to find uh, solutions to problems affecting those communities and how they used those processes and methods to uh, solve a problem. So the, uh, the case studies and all the learnings are available on our website at uh, thegovlab.org slash collective intelligence. Um, and I invite everybody to go take a look at it. Uh, yeah. And the idea is simply that, you know, this isn't something new and radical that we're proposing. It's, it's, it's stuff that is being done around the world and stuff that needs to be scaled up and done by more people. Um, another project on, on sort of a related vein that we did uh, is called Crowd Law, and that is uh, participatory lawmaking using new technologies. So we're recording this conversation on Zoom 
you could very easily leverage video conferencing technologies like this to uh, speak to large communities. You know, in, in India, of course, the central government is in Delhi. In the US, it's in, it's in Washington, D.C. And lawmakers sitting in these cities aren't really tuned into what's happening in some, you know, uh, town in, in, in some other state that they're not in. Right. Um, and it's hard for them to travel everywhere and, you know, get to know people in person and ask people questions and things like this. But technology lets us do these things at scale now, right? Everybody has a phone. Uh, it might not be a smartphone, but most people have a phone. In India, smartphone penetration, in fact, is pretty, pretty high. Um, so how do you leverage these technologies to talk to real people, find out what problems they have and how the policies you're making are actually impacting them and designing better policies uh, as a result? So we looked at how, uh, you know, if you look very broadly at the policy making cycle as, let's say, four stages, right? There's a stage of discovering what problems there are that need to be solved. There's the, the, the point of identifying a solution. Uh, legislatures need to then draft some law or policy in response. And then you need to see if it's working. So you need to evaluate if these things that you're implementing are actually working. Uh, and then the cycle sort of restarts. So at each of these steps, there's places that uh, the public can contribute, not just as a means of, you know, some philosophical democratic process, which it absolutely is. That is what real democracy is. But because people are really intelligent and they can give you some very, very good input to make um, your whatever you're working on better. So that's crowd law. Um, and that's, you know, it, it, we again cataloged a whole lot of case studies. We've interviewed both legislators um, around the world, um, in the US, in Europe, uh, in Africa, um, and in Asia. And we did, uh, we did interviews with legislative staff because there's a lot of logistics around this, right? It's not, you can't just say, I'm going to talk to people and then just leave it at that. So uh, speaking with the staff who actually implemented it to understand how they did it. We, um, we've done, you know, cataloged, uh, I think over a hundred instances of participatory lawmaking from around the world. There's a few in India also, uh, very impressive ones. And then we did one very specific project with the U.S. Congress to sort of inform how they would do participatory lawmaking if, if okay. uh, you know, if you're interested if in happens, that. Right. Right. Um, and then now, because we live in COVID times, it's hard to it's hard to not do something related to COVID. Right. Um, and one one big uh, problem that that legislatures around the world faced in the past few months is that it's it wasn't really safe to meet in person. So if, whether it's the Lok Sabha, which hasn't met uh, this year for the same reason. Uh, I mean, it, it did recently, the most recent session with uh, social distancing and they sort of had their plexiglass in front of them and stuff. Uh, but earlier in, sorry? They had TVs, like flat screen TVs put up and like specific booths spread out for like each uh, different people. It was, it was. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it wasn't, there was a point when earlier in the year, it wasn't safe to do that. Honestly, I don't think it's safe to do it now. Yeah. Um, but but the, but the, the you know the reality is they don't need to do that, right? That there are easier ways for 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 uh, a group of people to meet and debate and vote, uh, and you can do it virtually. And if the if the Parliament of India can't do it with all the resources at its disposal, uh, then who can? Uh, so so 
we in fact it turns out that you can and there are legislatures around the world who have um, continued working remotely sometimes hybrid so some some people in person most of the others online um, and they've designed security into the process so that you know th there are legitimate concerns about what happens if someone hacks the process and you know the voting systems are messed up and things like that um, but just for things like committee hearings there's a lot of committees in 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 the Indian Parliament, for example, um, which meets and deliberates, this is across party lines, uh, deliberate serious issues before a policy get, gets drafted and they have to hear from the public and they have to hear from subject matter experts. They can do these things online. So we documented in a project called Continuity in Congress. Um, how do you maintain continuity in Congress during disasters of this sort where it's not safe to meet online and it's not safe for, um, legislatures to travel into into uh, you know from their cities from their constituencies into uh, into delhi or into dc um, so that's another one again the the basic premise of all of this is that you can use technology in a way that solve problems both big and small right. uh, problems both immediate and long term um, and we're exploring how how these different things can can work out that's that's really interesting honestly you know I honestly did not know that there were these many projects that were being undertaken until I read some of the links you'd sent me. Because I thought, okay, we have things out there which are happening. And yes, there are problems which are being defined and solved. But I never thought that there was there was such a huge amount of them, you know. Like the the most interesting of problems that you wouldn't even think of, you know. Or like wouldn't even think governments would address you see them being addressed like all throughout the world you know and that's i think that's right. cool so um i wanted to ask you that uh so you specifically work in problem definition right under right. government and right. so like how did you like get into problem definition to that extent where it sort of became like the area that you were working in the most since there are obviously so many divisions under government right but the yeah focus on is like problem definition so how yeah. does that so i mean it's a that's a very interesting question because it turns out that no matter what solution you're creating right whether it's the continuity in congress project or the crowd law project or anything else if you don't define a problem upfront and define it narrowly or accurately enough it doesn't matter what solution you're you're chasing it's not going to work or it's not going to work as well as you think because it's not targeted at the right problem. Uh, this is not some uh, uh, intuition I had in the middle of the night and then I woke up and said, I'm going to do problem definition. <laughs> it's something that, it's something that um, GovLab has been doing uh, for a very long time now. So uh, GovLab's director and co-founder, Professor Beth Novak is, is sort of the, um, our kind of thought leader in this space. Uh, we've had uh, a, a lot of great coaches over the years. Um, one of my colleagues, Tenora, who is now working in a municipality in Mexico, trying to take all these skills and processes that she's kind of developed at GovLab uh, and trying to take it to, the, to real people in some sense in government. So trying to bring that culture shift within government. Um, so this is stuff that's been happening way before I joined GovLab. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, the the idea is is so powerful right you can't solve a problem until you properly expose it really expose it and make it very clear what what that challenge is that you're trying to tackle 
so honestly like since you've explained it that way i am sure that there are like a lot of challenges which come up when you're trying to define the problem correctly so uh, what are usually the kind of challenges you face while trying to define a problem and then come at, come at a solution so the challenges of course depends on the particular problem and the scale of the problem that you're trying to tackle uh it's a difficult thing to do so let i'm happy to give you an example but just generally just talking about challenges right there are some very common challenges in problem definition irrespective of what the problem is and i can give you an example uh, soon but then some of these things are very general right it doesn't matter mm-hmm. the first is that we don't do it right we just don't do problem definition and i think that's the biggest mistake that people make right you it's and there's reasons for it people often if you're if you're working in government for example and you're assigned a certain task you don't have time to think about i can't take 3 days and think about the problem because i just need to do something i need to put up a website i need to uh and you're constantly trying to drive with the solution so you don't take the time to to do the problem definition so that's really the first challenge is to get people to do problem definition or to get ourselves to do problem definition just looking a little bit inwards um and then when you look at uh when you start looking at these solutions sometimes people make this mistake of saying you know the lack of my solution is the problem so okay i'm working on this really cool app and the real problem here is that people aren't using my app and that's why this problem isn't getting solved and i'm like well no maybe you know you have yes there is there is that challenge of getting people to adopt a website or to start using an app right but independent of that solution the problem is still the problem right and you've got to before you start linking it with your solution you need to just define what that problem is uh and i'll give you an example for that one uh a few years ago india had this really massive anti corruption movement right uh around the lokpal bill and it's like oh corruption problem and we need a solution and here's the solution and it's the lokpal bill so let's get parliament to pass lokpal bill which in a few years at much yeah you know did it solve corruption not really right like maybe it did it solve some aspects of corruption probably yeah but did was the absence of the lokpal bill the reason for corruption no right corruption is a problem by itself and you need to define that first um and that brings me to to sort of the third challenge with problem definition which is it's too broad like the problem you're defining is too broad like corruption is too broad a problem to solve climate change is too broad a problem to solve um we talk about women's safety in india it's too broad a problem to solve there's too many nuances and differences in how different people experience these problems right and there's no sort of at a stroke of a pen you solve this problem immediately right you need to it's you need it's a multifaceted problem so the solution has to be multifaceted um and it might be several solutions so each solution is targeting one aspect of the problem right so yeah. it's important at the start to define which one of those problems you're tackling so that when your solution comes out you can say yes my solution didn't solve all the problems but it solved x y and z and therefore there is still work to be done on a b and c so if it's too if a problem you define is too big and too broad uh you miss that opportunity to sort of go i don't know where i've i've ended up right uh and a good example of that is again 
corruption, uh, it looks different at corruption at the cabinet level. So at the time, it was all about the 2G scam. It looks very different if you're trying to get a passport in a passport office, right? That's, it's not the same type of corruption. It's not the same type of solutions. And it looks different depending on who you are. And, you know, if, if, if you're in a marginalized, vulnerable community, it looks very different. It looks very different if you're affluent. So um, it's important also to, to kind of understand that aspect of the problem. Right, yeah. And then the, the, the last thing is, and this is really the toughest part in my opinion, and it's, it's something I struggle with a little bit also, which is we look at symptoms of problems as problems. As problems themselves. Right. And that's not to say that problem uh, symptoms don't cause discomfort to people or aren't problematic for people, which they absolutely are. Um, but if you try to remedy it, you're ignoring the real problem. And what that does is it lets the problem sort of fester and rot underneath and it will just keep throwing new symptoms at you. And that's all you'll be doing. You'll ever only ever be tackling symptoms and never the underlying problem. So it's a it's to be entirely honest, I'm still trying to figure out how to do this correctly. So if you throw a problem at me and say, is this a symptom or a problem? I might not be able to like uh, immediately tell you, but that's the whole point, right? You shouldn't be asking me. You should be asking subject matter experts who can tell you this, this is not, this is symptomatic of an underlying problem. And this is what the underlying problem is. So it's important to talk to people, talk to experts, talk to people who, who face these issues uh, about, about problems, not just when you're looking for solutions, but also when you're trying to understand the problem. Right. So, yeah. So th those are, I would say that the top three or four problems or challenges with problem definition. So like, okay, over here in Delhi, okay, I'm going to do what you said. I'm going to throw a problem. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. So, um, right now in Delhi, it's like sort of Diwali time, right? And Diwali is coming and there's so much pollution here, right? But a lot of that is attributed to stubble burning. So is that like a problem or is that a symptom of a problem? So that's a, it's a very, very good example. Um, and, and if you dig a little bit deeper into it, you'll find that it is a symptom of a problem, right? And it's a symptom of a few problems. Um, especially in Delhi, pollution can be attributed to a few things. It can be, in some sense, during Diwali, of course, firecrackers are a source of pollution, no doubt about it. Um, there's industrial pollution, there's dust, there's, you know, all of these uh, other kind of that kind of regular throughout the year kind of pollution. And then there's also the pollution that comes out of stubble burning. Now, if you, if you want to stop it, right, if you want to stop, you can, you can ban firecrackers, you can stop industries, but you need to sort of understand why, why is it that every year this kind of peaks around Diwali, it's not like you stop firecrackers and you do odd even, and suddenly the pollution stops. It doesn't, it reduces a little bit, but it doesn't quite stop it. And you can attribute that to, oh, these farmers are burning stubble, so we need to stop them. But then if you, if you dig into that a little bit deeper, you need to understand why farmers are burning stubble. Why, why do farmers burn stubble all the time around Diwali for the past so many years? They've been doing it around Diwali. Is there like some Diwali related event that happens that's forcing them to burn burn uh, stubble. And for those who don't know, stubble is basically the remaining part of a crop once you've harvested uh, the rice crop. 
there's a little bit of the the stem that remains and and it's a it's a hard task to get it out of the ground uh the more affluent farmers have machinery that can do this you know it just goes through their fields and it just picks up all the stubble um the the less affluent farmers the easiest thing for them to do especially actually this year because there isn't that much uh, there's actually a, a reduction in the amount of labor available in farms because of covid right it's just easier for them to set it on fire and burn it so then they can prepare the land for the following uh, crop right yeah so if you if you really want to solve that pollution issue again let me preface that by saying it's not going to end the pollution problem that delhi has it might end the pollution problem delhi has in november as a result of the as, as a result of the stubble burning Good so let me preface that right now why is that happening it turns out that there was a law that was introduced a few years ago and it uh, in punjab and haryana and it's meant to conserve uh, groundwater okay. very interestingly and what it said was during the summer farmers can't plant the rice crop uh, during during you know the peak summer because rice actually requires a lot of water to grow mm. and so they were asked to delay the rice uh, the sowing of the rice by a month so that you know the summer is over and then the monsoon is coming uh, so there's going to be uh, rainwater available uh, and so it wouldn't be as much of a problem now what that did was that shifts their entire sowing season and then the harvest season by an equal amount and then you need to during december is when they plant their winter crops yeah so they have a very small turnaround between when they harvest this rice and when they sow the next crop and it's it's important for them to plant the next crop at the right time and so it's just easier for them to get rid of the stubble by burning it rather than waiting for you know manually to mow all the stubble and it's very expensive and they can't afford it and things like that so now if you think about that the better way to deal with delhi's pollution during november as a result of stubble burning may not be to ban stubble burning it might be to give farmers these resources to remove stubble from the ground uh that does not involve burning right yeah it's a, it's a very unintuitive kind of way to deal with pollution right how does giving farmers machinery stop delhi's pollution well maybe it does now this is a hypothesis right this is a hypothesis that some people have come up with uh to understand what the reason for stubble burning is what's important to do now is to see if two things one does the data support this is it actually true that the delay in the sowing season is the reason that farmers are burning stubble um and two is to go and talk to the farmers who are burning the stubble right there are resources that that are already available to them you need to question why they aren't able to take advantage of it right mm-hmm. and is it because the department of agriculture is not uh giving them these resources at the right time when they need it there's corruption there so they're not able to access it they're not aware that these resources are available so there's going to be a whole lot of issues surrounding that and those are individual things that you will have to deal with separately right um but again so it's important to confirm this hypothesis by talking to people and looking at the data and then to say okay now how do i deal with it and you have to find creative solutions again i'm not an expert in sort of agriculture so i'm i'm just going to convey let's say what i've read about this issue and one of the solutions that's come up is why don't you create sort of cooperative societies where farmers who can't afford machinery um are all given access to a common pool of resources right, right. Yeah. and then they can they can leverage that during the the harvest season
right yeah no honestly i feel like that's something that would honestly work because i mean if that is an actual uh, if that's the problem behind it then establishing schemes such as odd and even or like saying okay ban firecrackers like sure okay that will reduce the automobile part of the pollution but what about the major part of the pollution which is coming from like haryana and punjab you know exactly exactly and then of course delhi needs to also question is your pollution problem only around november i don't know i was in delhi uh in earlier in the year and it wasn't particularly uh particularly clean so there's there's obviously other issues there which uh, you need to investigate uh, on along similar lines i feel like uh, the thing is that during november that's when it like peaks you know that's when it reaches its peak yeah. level and then like you can't get out without a mask or you don't yeah. at all you know i don't yeah. nobody's getting out without a mask right now anyway so that's right. my favor but otherwise throughout the year to people who live in delhi it's not like you're not really feeling the pollution around you you know yeah and if like you go out somewhere and you come back and you're like okay there's pollution here but otherwise yeah. it's normal you you don't even notice it yeah it's it's only in november when when uh, delhi is in the new york times as most polluted city in the world that's when everyone's like oh now this is a problem like this is when we need to deal with it yeah i feel like at least problems like the or symptoms of these problems like they need to be defined you know not seasonally they need to be defined like properly to like properly right. throughout the year right exactly so this is again this goes back to my uh, earlier point about defining issues narrowly if you say pollution in delhi pollution in delhi throughout the year has in different times of the year has different reasons right yeah. and therefore different solutions and so it's very important you know whoever is responsible for for tackling this uh, looks at it in that way and understands that it manifests differently for people i mean again you to be careful here also for a lot of people the only problem with pollution is you need to go out with a mask right right uh, that's it's an inconvenience uh for a lot of people it's actually you know people who have respiratory issues it's a matter of life and death yeah. for people who don't have housing that can afford you know air filters and stuff uh people uh, you know there's people in delhi that there are there are people living on the streets for example and it's a big health hazard for them it's dangerous for highway driving so there's issues that come as a result of this pollution uh and you need to understand why why these things are happening and and tackle them separately right yeah no that honestly makes so much sense so you talked so all throughout what we've talked about right now you've mentioned that we need to involve different people and sort of leverage their experience right so what like how important is the role of stakeholders in problem definition like okay although i understand the fact that you need to look at the problem from the view of the stakeholder but how, how major a role does that play in actually defining the problem itself yeah so no matter what public problem you're solving you have to involve the public right to know what what the problem is that they're facing and again this isn't some just some nice democratic thing to do and oh everyone's going to feel good about themselves because they did this exercise and there's consultation and it looks legitimate but it's literally the only way to know how people feel about a problem right and then to understand exactly what problem you're trying to solve and for whom you're trying to solve it yeah because the way a problem impacts different people is often very different right so yeah. corruption manifests very differently for a migrant laborer working in a big city trying to collect her wages from the um you know the nhai officials or whoever 
uh, it manifests very differently for a transgender woman in some city trying to get a permit to start a business, very differently for an elderly person going to a bank, very differently for a Dalit student trying to get a scholarship. It's, it's so different for different people. Right. So it's important to understand which one of these are you trying to tackle, right? And it, it matters it matters for your solution, but it also matters for to to let people know that that you actually care about the problems they're facing. And it's not yeah. some massive faceless issue that doesn't have a person behind it. Every public problem has faces, right? You have to understand it and it impacts individual people. And if you put a face to that problem, then and I don't mean as face to a problem in the sense of blaming someone for it. I mean, face to a problem as someone's experiencing this problem. Right. And when you think about it that way, if you don't understand what real people are going through, the solution you come up with is not, is not going to solve it for them. And then you need to get them uh, to be part of the process of solving this problem. And that starts with defining the problem. It's not just when you, you know, let's say I, I lived in Bangalore and traffic is a massive problem in Bangalore, as I'm sure it is in Delhi. Yeah. Um, if, if, you know, every time they come up with a new, new rule and they say, here's what we're going to do to solve the traffic problem. A lot of us were just like, I'd, I mean, you're, because we go through that traffic every day, and the solution you're coming up with has nothing to do with, we know what the real problem is. Like I'll give you a very, it's a sort of silly example, but it's true. Um, there was a, a, a particular traffic junction near my house where every day at peak hour in the morning, there was a traffic jam all the time. And we knew as a, you know, because we traveled through that traffic every, every day, that it's because there was a bus stop that was right next to the signal. And so these two or three buses would stop and that's it. And like, it's not enough time for cars to go around them. And by the time you get around the buses, the green light has turned red and suddenly there's a traffic jam. Yeah. Right? Now you can come up with smart traffic systems and have these countdown numbers and it measures the quantity of traffic and they put sensors and all of these things. And we're just like, just move the, the bus stop, right? Like just, we know, we kind of understand this is our frustration. Why aren't you asking us what the problem is? Yeah. Um, and. That's not to say that uh, that we can suggest the solutions, right? Maybe there's there's reasons why the bus stop is there, but we can tell you at least what the problem is. The problem is right, yeah. And and kind of getting that kind of feedback from people is very important. And in my experience of living in Bangalore city, the the only way government gets any feedback is through complaints, <laughs> right? Okay. It's through someone calling the Bangalore traffic police and saying, oh, every day in the morning, there's this traffic jam at this place. Can you fix it? And it's really hard to, to get anything useful from that. It's just people expressing their frustration. Right? Yeah. So if, and, and it's honestly just better for everybody. It's better for the authorities who are supposed to fix it. It's better for the people who suffer the problem when we're all working together towards an issue. And there's some structure to that process. So that's that's one really important reason to uh, to involve people uh, in this process. Now, it's true that uh, if you try to use the internet for some of these things, and it, some departments actually do, you know, they they accept complaints via Facebook and Twitter and things like that. And if you tweet about the traffic problem, the Bangalore uh, traffic police Twitter is very active. Um, they'll respond. They'll they'll tag whoever the right police officer is and you know try and fix it. 
and you will have these occasional trolls right who are just out there to troll but uh, young people know that uh, you know trolls are part of the internet uh, internet experience exactly. so when you design a process like this you have to uh, have some sort of moderation system that that deals with it. so uh, yeah so it's it's really critical i'll just add one more thing which is i know i sort of backhandedly dismissed the democratic aspect of this earlier but even philosophically this is really democracy right because what we do every four years which is to vote is of course part of democracy but yeah. if you leave to you know leave everything all your problems and all your solutions you leave it to the person or the people who get elected once in four years and you're like now this is your job for the next four years because you got a majority of the votes by definition that's not a democracy that's a majoritarianism that's a majority uh, yeah there's no there's no democracy there democracy is when there's participation and there's debate and there's consultation and everybody is kind of uh, part of that process and what you're hunting for is yes you're hunting for consensus but you're also hunting for new perspectives of how how can these problems be solved um so that's that's the real beauty of democracy and we should really be proud and just lean into the fact that we're a really vibrant democracy and we need to take more advantage of the um really opinionated opinionated uh crowds that we have uh, and uh, you know amartya sen very famously called it the argumentative indian right take, take advantage of it agree yeah no but i feel like that's genuinely taken like a little bit of a back seat now you know especially this year like the entire process of okay debating on something and then passing the law itself i feel like that's taken yeah. seat especially because of coronavirus you know because i feel like at this point there are certain problems that the government has already been working on right and mm-hmm. they're like okay uh, we can't really spend that much time debating on it so let's just pass it you know yeah. and honestly seen that happening not only in india but like a lot of countries around the world like i've been reading about that and yeah. sort of like sort of like a backlog you know towards everything we've been working for and okay i understand the fact that coronavirus should not uh, like it's understandable that's happening but at the same time we need to realize the fact that especially during coronavirus times when so many people are feeling so many different problems that's when we need to effectively leverage democracy and address all of those problems you know absolutely and actually you raise another important point that um which i think by now everybody is kind of familiar with this idea that coronavirus hasn't thrown any new problems at us it's just exposed all these failings that we had as governments and as societies um and what you described is actually one of those things which is governments are not used to asking people for input in any case right in, even in a non coronavirus year these processes don't exist so if all of a sudden in a once in a century pandemic if you suddenly told government now you need to go do public consultation nobody nobody has a clue about how to do that well right uh, so it's important that when we're not dealing with a, a global pandemic uh, to already be prepared with these things and and just look at it this way right it's not again young people will will get this very intuitively it's not that hard to set up a video conference and talk to a bunch of people and get some insights out of it right like it's not it's not rocket science it doesn't take 3 months to do it uh you can i mean it's it's work to set it up and to to run it but it's not a time consuming process in the sense that you know it's going to slow everything down it doesn't if you do it right if you design it correctly and you have the right people running it you can do it very very in a very nimble fashion 
uh, and the important thing is to have the the sort of will or the desire to engage in that process and genuinely expect something good from it right because you can do a public consultation for the sake of public consultations which honestly to some extent and i don't mean to broad brush this but the indian parliament believe it or not does have a public consultation process so every bill that is introduced in the indian parliament almost every bill has to go through a standing committee and that standing committee will almost always um, ask for for public input into into a bill there's mm-hmm. a few people on twitter who track this um i can i'm happy to share some of those uh, I, i can't remember their names on the top of my head but i follow some of them sorry i'll put them down below once we put the put this out yeah that sounds good um and they just track every time a standing committee put up something saying okay there's a public consultation on this bill uh you need to come to delhi and testify in front of you know these eight lok sabha members of lok sabha uh and give them the, your feedback you don't need to be an expert you could be anybody in the public now the problem is for most of these things uh it's it's part of the law that you have to do it and so what happens is they'll publish an ad in the seventh page of some random newspaper and be like oh parliament invites your comments and nobody sees it and therefore nobody participates uh so why do it that way one very interesting thing that has happened though over the past 4 to 6 years under this new government um is that there's a platform called mygov india which is their public consultation platform an app for it um there's an app for it as well yeah uh it's not i wouldn't say it's perfect but it's certainly a step in the right direction um for the reason that they have now asked all departments who plan to introduce a new law or a policy to put it up on mygov for public feedback which is honestly a much more transparent way of doing it than publishing and add in the seventh page in you know in some obscure newspaper yeah um so there there steps being taken towards making this process better um but you know again it depends on how you design it and and whether you actually want and what you do with the input because there's a limit to how many times you can ask the people for for inputs and if you don't use it people are going to be like why why bother why why am i doing this right so okay. unless you show that feedback is being taken seriously it it's not that you need to implement everything the crowd tells you but it's important to take into consideration and then let people know if you used it why you used it and if you didn't use it why you didn't use it but it's a it's a conversation and you have to keep that going that honestly brings me to my next thought so um the thing is that we talked right now about how important it is to involve stakeholders in the problem definition process right but how do you convince those stakeholders that they need to be involved you know because especially now like in all in countries all around the world like people are like okay uh, they've gotten so used to their opinion and opinion not mattering or not being used that they just feel like it doesn't matter at all right so for example in the us right now there's such a huge uproar that okay everybody needs to vote because the last time the voting rate was so meager because people were like my opinion doesn't matter so why should i even vote and that led to their opinion being suppressed even more you know it's like sort of like a vicious cycle so how do you like convince people that okay this is something you need to be doing and your opinion does matter you know that is a great question and in fact it's it's backed up with a lot of data there because it's it's a almost universal fact that trust in government institutions is at an all time low oh. even before the pandemic right uh, and after the pandemic has done has done those numbers no good um 
so that there, there's a trust deficit between uh, the public and the people that the public elect. Uh, and that's a real problem that needs to be solved uh, uh, just to improve the trust in government. Now, yeah. one way to do it is like, like I was saying, to, to create processes that are legitimately conversational, right? You, you have to keep dialogue open with people. And people are not, people are intelligent, right? Right. The public everywhere is very intelligent and they're willing to contribute if you ask them and then you actually take it seriously. Right. Now to build that trust is, is hard and it's not something you can do at a, at a national level one day some you know, president or a prime minister comes and says, look, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. I want everybody to participate. That happens. And it happens in, in weird ways. Like if you, India is honestly, in some sense, an exception to that rule about trust in government because trust in government in India by the same statistics is at about 74%, which is very high compared to like the US, which is at 21%, for example, right? So there is some element of trust that the Indian people have in governments. It doesn't matter which political party they are. It's almost universally been high numbers in India for the past decade or more, um, which is the reason why, for example, when demonetization happened, there weren't revolts on the street, right? People were very happy to go along with uh, something super radical and something that normally, you know, you'd associate with inconvenience and people don't like it and people won't listen to you and people won't buy into the idea. When it comes from, when it comes from the right place, and it's positioned correctly, which is something that was done right with demonetization is the storytelling around it. Right. Um, whether it actually had an impact or not is a separate question. I don't think it did. But the fact that uh, you know, the prime minister was able to convince 1.2 billion people to do that and not have revolts on the streets shows that there is a certain element of trust uh, that people broadly in India have. A lot of people might have cribbed about it when they were doing it, but they still did it. Right. right yeah. So, so then the question is, how do you do something like that at the grassroots level, right? At at a panchayat level, or at in the case of Bangalore, and I mean, I'm sure it's similarly for Delhi, um, at the municipality level, how do you get government at that level? to interact with people more, to talk to people more. If, because if you can't do it at that level, then it's nearly impossible to do it at the national level. Right, completely. Because that's the government you're seeing. So if I need my footpath fixed because my footpath is being dug up every three months and no one's doing anything about it and I can't use the footpath, I can't go to the prime minister. I need to go to whoever is responsible for that in the local government department. Uh, yeah. Now, if that process is a pain, then automatically I'm tuned out of government. This is not not working for me. And really those are, those are small things, but those are things that affect people in everyday life. And if you can start fixing these kind of conversational practices and dialogues at that level, I think it slowly builds trust over time. And that kind of decentralization of, of power and of action uh, is important. And that's something that happens in some states in India, it's not universal. In Kerala, for example, there is a large amount of decentralization of power. So the state government doesn't control everything. It's de de devolved some of its power down to the panchayat level. And, very uh, and so, I'm sorry, say that again. They've done it very effectively, like as compared to other states, 
Kerala, I feel like, is at its, you know, peak when it comes to decentralization and actually giving resources to those decentralized bodies to carry out it effectively, you know? Absolutely. And that's that's one of the reasons you see that Kerala is a very politically active uh, society. Uh, you don't see governments repeat in Kerala very often. It's almost, I think, for the past 15 or 20 years, every f- five years, the government changes in Kerala. Right. But these processes remain, they stay back and, and people actually are bought into uh, into this and, and regular people are willing to get involved in politics. It's not a bad word um, to be involved in politics. And I think, so So starting at a level that uh, at which people actually see that government is interested in hearing from you and government is interested in your perspectives to solve everyday problems, I think is, a, is one very important first step to building that trust in, in processes of this kind. And getting uh, and getting people involved, right? No, completely. And I feel like you know that's something that's honestly not that hard to do, even at the state level. Like to involve people, honestly, in India, you get constant messages when you need to get your Aadhaar card, right? When the Aadhaar card came out, everybody got everybody got a message that okay, you need to get another Aadhaar card until this date. Everybody did it. So I feel like similarly, you know, that kind of like a text portal or something like that can be leveraged to like get, even if it's like a closed opinion or like a multiple choice question on, okay, how do you feel about this policy? You know, I feel like even that just using like a text campaign like that honestly does provide a certain amount of data, you know, if not fully broad, like if not fully uh, encompassing everything that everybody thinks, it still provides you with like a certain amount of data, you know. Yeah, let me let me just expand that a little bit because it can go beyond asking people for opinions, right? Pe- being involved in the process of a, of solving a public problem doesn't necessarily have to mean you're expressing your opinion about something. It could be where you're actually assisting with data, like you mentioned. So a good example of this is now you have all over the place, you have these symptom trackers for COVID where you answer a very quick survey that says, do you have a cough, do you have a cold? Have you met someone who's COVID positive, blah, 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 five questions. Um, If you're willing to engage in that self-reporting process, that itself can actually be pretty helpful for government because the the testing regime in most countries is actually pretty slow. So by the time you do a test and then you get your results, it's almost a week, right, right? For that entire process to unfold sometimes. And so you're getting a snapshot of what was happening a week ago. Whereas if you, if you get enough number of people to report, today I have a cough and a cold and a whatever, runny nose, uh, and you see in a, in, in, in a particular neighborhood, in a particular city, that these symptoms are like sort of off the charts, then you know that there's something wrong there, right? You, might, you can't confirm that any of them have COVID, but at least as, as a decision maker, you know there's likely there's an outbreak here, I need to do some sort of quarantine, something there, or or send in some um, medical help to confirm this. And it's an it's a great way of kind of participating in in really uh, helping government get a better snapshot of of uh, the situation on the ground. Because who else? Um, there there is no smaller unit of government than the individual. Right? That is as granular as you can go. Um, and so if the individual is contributing to this process of uh, of helping government get be in some sense your eyes on the ground right that is another way of participating it's not it's not uh, it's it's not very different from from expressing your opinion in uh, i mean you know as 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 a manner of uh, as a method of participation so 
there's ways you can get involved and there's ways that governments can can take help from people and you just have to be creative with those with those ways yeah no i completely agree and now that brings me to my next question so we talked right now about how leveraging data is is very important you know to get public opinion to shape public policy to solve public problems but how do you effectively leverage data sets without address without you know any of the problems coming out like okay you're violating a person's privacy or like you're going to foreign taking a certain amount of personal information which probably should not be there you know so how do you like effectively draw the line that this is how i leverage these data sets and this is how i make sure that the problems do not arise with these data sets so yes absolutely uh let me preface it first though uh by saying two things one is you can leverage non personal data in several ways that can solve public problems so not all data has privacy concerns right like if i'm not collecting anything to do with anyone's private information those concerns don't exist but then there's another disclaimer here which is yes data is very important but you have to be extremely careful with interpreting data and be conscious of the fact that data can and often is biased it can be incomplete right um it might not have there might be kind of errors in 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 data entry so there's all of these things that you have to be conscious of and and do a sort of sanity check with with data before um before you trust it completely but having added that disclaimer let me say it's exceptionally useful it's a brilliant asset to to leverage uh, to solve public problems and now of course people are very familiar with covid data and i mean everyone's looking at infection rates and death rates and what not and that's a great illustration right so what does what does that data let you do it lets you spot outbreaks it lets you spot severity of the outbreaks it lets you track where infections are declining so you can plan when you can reopen and it 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 really shines a light on where the problem is right. right and and i think that's that's one really important uh use case of data is just to spotlight issues so for example a few years ago um we did a series of case studies uh called open data impact right in open data in 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 simple terms is freely available publicly available data which is available in machine readable formats um you know so you're not publishing data as a pdf document with with some tables you're publishing it as a excel spreadsheet for example or in formats that uh you can do some data analysis on okay um so we were looking at how can you use this kind of open data uh again there's no i mean i wouldn't say there's no privacy implications there but there are data sets that don't have any personally identifiable information in them right how can you use these uh or this open data to solve public problems right how do you leverage it for the public good and one of the project projects we were looking at was there was this ngo in pune which distributed these electrical meters um to to homes and to industries and all you have to do is plug it in and what it would do was uh was to measure voltage levels and frequencies and all these characteristics of electricity right now i've lived in bangalore and in kerala and i'm sort of very painfully aware of this concept concept of low voltage right oh. so in in uh, in a home that could mean your tube lights flickering or you know your microwave won't turn on for example 
because there's low voltage, right? It, now the, the thing is, if you ask the electricity board, they'll say, yeah, yeah, we provide 24 seven electricity. Uh-huh. But for the end user, it's like, well, yeah, but if I can't use any of the devices at home, what good is this electricity to me? Right. And in fact, for industries, that's an even bigger problem because their machinery can often be, uh, you know, spoiled or or damaged because of uh, fluctuations in in quality. So, in theory, uh, what can happen is you can go to the electricity board and be like, "Look, I'm I'm facing these issues with electricity," and the board will be like, "Yeah, well, you're paying for electricity. We're giving you 24 ele- 24 hours of electricity. What are you complaining about?" <laughs> But then what this NGO was doing was you put these meters and it records periodically the quality of all this, of the electricity you're getting. Uh, And now you have evidence that the quality of electricity you're receiving is poor and you can use that for advocacy, you can, you know, whatever. But more importantly, in theory, the way it can work is if I was to collect this data and show it to the electricity board, they now have... Uh, a data set that they can look at and be like, oh, that's interesting. I, we need to figure out why this quality problem in this neighborhood was happening on these days. Right. So it lets, it also, again, shine the spotlight on, on the issue and it, it's helpful for advocacy. It's, it's a really powerful way of leveraging uh, data to, uh, to, to, again, you know, shine, shine a spotlight. And this is true across sectors, it's not just in healthcare or in electricity or in, in something else. Uh, in If you look at the Indian economy, right, there's, there's, for the last few years, there's been a massive banking crisis and companies going bankrupt and they can't pay back loans and, and all of these things. And I remember watching a talk by uh, the former governor of the Reserve Bank of India, Raghuram Rajan, who when, when he first saw the, this issue, the first thing he did was to set up a few committees whose singular job it was was to document how many loans and have been given out by these banks and the quality of these loans and the status and stuff right and and it gives him as the banking regulator you know some idea of what to expect it's not like a company is now going to just overnight go bankrupt because someone has eyes on what this actual situation is it's a difficult thing to do to document that but if you do it you suddenly have these insights that you didn't have earlier so again, that's another example. Uh, it's way outside my uh, area of expertise, so I'm not going to try and describe uh, the the banking problem in India. Uh, but it's it's what he said struck me as important because again, that, what that showed was unless you really find uh, what the issue is backed by data, it's really important. It's really hard to do something about it because you're essentially otherwise poking in the blind. So, so in that sense, they, you can leverage data in pro- public problem solving in very powerful ways. Yeah, and I feel like we've come really far in terms of leveraging data. Like, so if you if you look at the healthcare sector, like right now during coronavirus times, as you mentioned, we have data available for every single thing possible. You know, like the number of cases within your ten mile radius, the number of uh, cases in India as a whole, the the, the number of active cases, so many, so many different data sets available, you know, and I feel like it's grown so much because when, so if you take the example of Ebola, for example, like when Ebola started, um, especially in like countries like Sierra Leone, where there was no data available on how to tackle the problem, the government said, okay, we're going to try and 
collect some data about this and at that time it was like so bizarre to the public you know that they want to collect data about yeah. of ebola infections you know and right. and they sort of did that and it like helped them address the epidemics so much better than they would have been able to without those data sets so i feel like we've come really far in terms of efficiency and just leveraging that data to make sure we actually are able to interpret it properly but yeah. I feel okay. So something that GovLab had worked on was the Ebola epidemic, like uh, documenting the Ebola epidemic in Sierra Leone, right? So do you know a little bit about how they, how the government started off collecting data? So we did actually work on the Zika epidemic when when it broke out four years ago, and we we did a a project called Smarter Crowdsourcing to bring together experts from around the world on infectious diseases, including people who had worked on Ebola, um, to, to just get, understand what the learnings are from, from different places, right? And how, how do you do this best? And I can, I'll take an example of data since that's the one you're raising and then I'll make another point. Um, in, you, with mosquito-borne diseases, it's important to track where outbreaks are happening and then to stop the outbreaks at the places that they're happening right. by by essentially preventing mosquitoes from breeding any anymore so speaking of problem definition one of the problems we defined in that in that project was how do you prevent trash accumulation and you know as a result of trash accumulation there's water accumulation and therefore mosquitoes are breeding and therefore mosquitoes are spreading zika right how do you how do you deal with that problem now in parallel the other one we were other issue we were looking at was was looking at data and there was a there's a professor at nyu his name is uh, professor lakshmi subramanyam who has done some absolutely incredible work uh predicting outbreaks of um of of these viruses based on call center data so for example um, in Pakistan, uh, he he did he did this project that was just looking at I believe it was malaria. I I might be mistaken. Is either malaria or cholera or one of these, one of these um, diseases? Um, and people would call the local health center and complain. You know, I have symptoms. You know, I have these X Y and Z symptoms, or I need an ambulance, whatever. And so you have this uh, phone, uh, people phoning in and and telling someone at the other end what symptoms they have. And when the volume of those calls rises, if you're looking at it from an intelligence point of view, you can really start look, you know, understanding which neighborhoods have people with, uh, uh, with these symptoms. And it gives you a very early indication of where an outbreak might be happening. Fast forward now, there's another professor in, at NYU. Her name is Rumi Chunara, who year around, not, not during COVID, but even before, what she does is predicting flu outbreaks based on people reporting flu-like symptoms, right? And predicting where and what intensity the flu outbreak the following year is going to be. Now you gather all of this that we've learned and then you apply it to COVID. And that's why you're so quickly able to understand why a symptom tracker is important, how you can use this symptom tracker data and so on. So there's a lot of learnings that have come over the years from people having experimented these absolutely incredible uh, projects uh, over time around similar diseases or totally different diseases, but some strategies that you can really apply 
uh, in the COVID context. Uh, all that having been said, it, it's been pretty clear that no one's really been prepared for a global pandemic at, at, this, at this level. Uh, scientists have been warning of this for years. There's even been a movie. If you have not watched Contagion, I, I, <laughs> I would strongly recommend that you watch it. Uh, so we've all had the warnings and we've still been rather unprepared, but I'll say this much that another example of, of Kerala being slightly ahead of the curve in that sense was because they had dealed, dealt with uh, the Nipah virus of a couple of years ago, uh, which they were able to deal with because they had some staff in the health department who had been trained in Ebola protocols before that. Now, in the initial days of COVID, they were able to contain the virus pretty well. Mm -hmm. But what COVID has shown us is that you can't just contain it locally. You have to do it at scale. Uh, and that's something I think everybody sort of equally, equally failed at. But what Kerala showed, at least in the initial days, was that you can learn a lot from, from, these, other, um, from these other epidemics. Right. Uh, that, you know, you have to be willing to experiment some of these new things and be very quick at it. You can't wait on some bureaucrat signing a file and then sending it to someone else for approval. These things have to happen very quickly. So that agility in government is something that, that we really need. Yeah, no, and even expanding beyond India, like if you look at any of the countries who have been able to manage this pandemic uh, relatively better than any other country, like if you look at South Korea, they were able to manage it so well simply because of the fact that they'd faced something like this before. Like around a few years ago, they'd face a similar epidemic, which had come from the Mediterranean, if I'm not wrong. And uh, they'd sort mm-hmm. of, you know, been through that and they'd learned from that because they suffered a lot during that time. They had no testing kits available. They didn't know how to, they didn't have enough hospital beds. So when that happened, the government was like, okay, we need to lay down how we're going to tackle this if it ever, if it ever happens in the future again, right? So they yeah. basically entered like these public-private partnerships wherein if, if, a similar case occurred again the private private companies would aid the public uh, would aid the government in sort of developing test kits like rapidly so that's yeah. why south korea has the high testing rate it does right now because it had prepared yeah. before this even started you know yeah and that's that just goes on to show you know that there is there's so much expertise that is available around the world that we are able to discover as regular people just surfing the internet, for example, uh, how do you get, how do you get the people who are supposed to deal with these crises to, to learn? And I'll, I'll give you another a couple of examples, actually. So um, at, the, at the start of the pandemic, we put together this course at GovLab called uh, Collective Crisis Intelligence. And it was uh, an attempt to get all these experts from around the world who had dealt with some crisis or the other uh, and we got them all to do like 15 minute videos just with what they've learned about this crisis, right? Like mm-hmm. From the crisis previously, that they see similarities now in the COVID crisis, which we should really be fixing. And it's available at covidcourse.thegovlab.org. And I'll, I'll tell you one story from that. There is an organization called Safecast. Um, and what they, they used to, uh, when the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear reactor disaster happened a few years ago. I think it was 2011. Um, They were handing out these uh, gigameters that would measure radiation so you can map out where the radiation was highest in the the adjoining areas. 
what they told us was something important, which is, yes, you do need to map out these things. And, you know, there's technology available to map out severity of outbreaks and stuff. But one thing that comes out of major crises like this is what are what they call secondary effects. And secondary effects are the result of people going through these traumatic experiences, losing a loved one, losing a friend, losing family, losing your job, whatever. All these things that COVID has done, it, it leads to severe mental health issues. It leads to people, you know, like long-term issues for people that they have to deal with at an individual level, at a, at a community level. And then there's also when government starts responding with, um, you know, resources to help you get out of that crisis, people are looking for fair treatment. And if you're not treated fairly, then people lose trust in government. And that just like that vicious cycle we were talking about earlier. And we're seeing all of those things again during COVID, right? You're seeing people go through traumatic experiences. We're seeing government being unresponsive in a lot of places. We need to learn from these other disasters that have happened previously. And one final one I'll, I'll mention is in Kenya, there's a platform called Ushahibi. They're essentially a crowdsourced mapping platform. So you can you pull up that map and you can essentially put pins and put data about anything that you want to on the map. Okay. During the Kerala floods that happened, I think a couple of years ago, a group of techies, they're not part of government, they're just an independent group of techies, almost overnight were able to use that platform to set up a platform which the Kerala government adopted, which essentially what it did was it let district administrations put up, here's what we need. We need baby food, we need sanitary napkins, we need this X, Y, and Z in this district. Um, and then people, people who want to sort of donate anything, which lots of people like to donate, you know, biscuits and, and medication and whatnot, were able to look at this map and go, oh, okay, uh, this district doesn't require tiger biscuits. So I'm not going to send a packet of 40 pack of tiger biscuits. I'm going to send some other medication or whatever. And it helps that coordination happen. What it tells you is that the technology is easily available. You can find it. That's not an issue. It requires someone who is able to look at a situation and go, I okay, here's, here's a communication problem. There's a lack of coordination. How do I fix it? The way to fix it is I go and talk to the district administration and say, this is the platform you need to use. This is where I will point people who are interested in donating. And I'm going to bring these two people together using this platform. And the tech is available. The solution around the tech is what requires creativity. And that's something that, um, that needs to come in. And these are all platforms that have been developed as a result of crises. And I'm sure there's things that are coming out of COVID that will be helpful in the long run similarly. Yeah, like, honestly, that just takes us to that quote, which is something like, the worst of times produce the best of people, or is it? Yeah. That's what it is, but honestly, that's just what you Something think. like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now we've talked about like a bunch of different things, right? We've talked about data sets, we've talked about stakeholders, we've talked about how to involve stakeholders, how to define problems. But how do you pull that all in together? You know, like how do you create a tangible project which encompasses all of the things we've spoken about right now? So there's a, there's a few ways to do it. And I won't claim that this is the only way, but at GovLab, we have a project that we're now doing called the Multi-City Challenge. Right. Um, it's, a, it's essentially a way to bring together both city governments and communities that they serve uh, onto, a, onto a single platform where you ask the public for 
ideas and proposals to solve problems with a commitment to then implement them with the people who have proposed those problems, uh, proposed those solutions. Okay. Um, and it goes through almost everything we've discussed so far. So it starts off with um, getting the city officials who are responsible for solving X, Y, and Z problems and sort of not, we don't need to teach them problem definition. We sort of get them to sit with us and do the problem definition themselves. Okay. Um, so it's a it's a skill that it's a skill set and a mindset that you can apply to anything, right? So it's it's a way we provide the resources that and the tools that they might not have previously had access to for for doing something like that, um, and get them to really narrowly define a problem that they think is urgent and that they have the resources to deal with, um, and that they as as the government are open to input for, right? You need that kind of stakeholder involvement. If you're not really bought into it as government, then like we discussed earlier, they're not going to use it. So we say, okay, pick an idea, pick a problem that, that you really care about. And then we open up that problem to the public through what is called an open innovation project or, or a crowdsourcing, you know, very broadly, you can call it crowdsourcing, where you put out this problem and say, okay, uh, here's the problem. We've very narrowly defined this problem. Let's say it's waste waste management or trash collection in a certain neighborhood. Do you have ideas for how it can be done better? Mm-hmm. Um, and and we invite proposals from the public. And once once those come through, um, we we do three things. First is we open all these ideas up to public voting, so everybody can vote on what they think are the best ideas. And this is the community voting on ideas suggested by the community. You pick the top five or 10 of those ideas, and then you take it to government and say, okay, there's 10 solutions that have come through that people really like. Which of these do you have capacity to implement? And then they'll select, I don't know, three or five. You then take that to subject matter experts and say, here are the things that ideas that people have suggested that government thinks they can implement. Now we want to know how do we technically implement this? Can you help? And then you go back to the people who suggested the ideas and say, okay, we have everything set up. Do you want to help implement it? Would you like to be part of the process that implements it? Mm -hmm. And if, you know, if they agree or if some other team who is willing to take it on agrees, we coach them towards implementing that project in the real world. Very, very interesting things happen as a result of this. We previously did this in Mexico and one, uh, there's a lot of outcomes that came out of that, but the one that really stuck with me was there was a, a again this was a, a, a in some sense a traffic problem in a neighborhood and it was being exacerbated by the problem that you know early in the morning parents have to drop off children at school and so a lot of parents are taking their kids in their own car so there's one kid in the car when there could be four and government has previously tried mandating carpooling and people absolutely hate it when government asks you, ask you to do something like that. But then when we ran this process and that solution came up through the public and the public voted for it and people themselves suggested the idea of carpooling or walking your kid to school, when these ideas bubble up from the public, they somehow feel more legitimate to the community and they're much more bought into it and they're bought into its success. Right. And so that idea, which previously had been rejected because it was being forced upon someone, is now really successful. Right. Uh, so it has all of these impacts that other than solving the problem, it really builds that trust with, with uh, between people and government. 
Uh, and I think it's a really powerful way of doing it. So we're running the multi-city challenge in Mexico right now. It's in the um, it's in the kind of post-proposal stage, and in, we're running it in Africa. And it's that challenge actually goes live on Wednesday. So we'll start getting proposals from people on Wednesday. Oh, wow. When we did it in Mexico, we got about twenty-four thousand people visiting the challenge platform and about 9,000 people voting on ideas and some 300 proposals that came through. Um, and it was incredible. It's just incredible to see how people get involved in these projects when you give them the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. No, I honestly think that after everything we've spoken about today, like it just sort of opens up your mind to like, you know, the fact that the simplest of problems or even the simplest of anything that you see around you has like such a multitude of things working towards it you know like and just to be able to leverage those reasons and to be able to leverage the fact that okay this is the way i'm going to even define this problem and work towards its solution like i feel like that's something really interesting and listening to all of these different projects that govlab and you have been working on i feel like it's really really inspiring you know because you're suddenly like okay this is something i can maybe try to do at like an individual yeah. level myself, you know, because at the Absolutely. end, GovLab is just like a citizen-run organization. It's not mm -hmm. the government itself, right? And right. just sort of opened up your mind to the fact that, okay, wow, there are so many things I can do myself too. So, yeah, yeah okay. That was honestly like a really, really inspiring set of things we talked about. <laughs> and I'm really glad we did. So thank you so much, Anirudh, for coming today on uh, hope and I feel like this will give a lot of people hope in government and in participatory decision making for that matter too so yeah thank you so much it was really a great experience talking to you I would absolutely enjoyed it too and I just want to say you know we've spoken so much about methods and tools and, and techniques and whatnot for the last hour, hour and a half but at the end of the day, what we need is people who get stuff done, right? Like you just need people who go out there and do things. And I mean, I'm sure there's so many people who, like you said, who, who will be super inspired to take up projects at their own individual level. And I, I just want, the only thing I think people need to know is as long as you have that kind of drive and the passion to go out and, and do something like a, a public problem solving project, just remember that you're solving it for somebody and somebody is really going to be thankful for you having taken that step. So even if your project doesn't do as well, your specific project doesn't do as well as you thought, forget about it, just move on because your goal is to solve a problem, not to sell a project, right? So it's, it's solving a problem. So just hold that as your guiding light and keep at it. And, and if I can help in anything on that path, then I'm happy to do so. And yeah. Alisa can share my contact information if anybody's yeah. interested. Yeah. <laughs> okay, perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much.